0: You ever have those moments when you're when you're singing a song or thinking about something from scripture that it just strikes you that I don't deserve a God that good. That's why I felt singing those songs. I just don't deserve God to be that good to me. I deserve very low servant status. I don't deserve to be servant like we sang, but if anything, that would be like marvelous grace, but we get sonship. Well, anybody, is there anybody you're having a hard time with lately? Ever forgiven anyone who didn't deserve it? Well, if you have, then this sermon is for you. And if you haven't, this sermon is really for you. Tonight, I'm going to continue in our series on the neglected New Testament. We've been doing a brief series um, of studies on the, the one-chapter letters of the Bible, the ones that often don't get preached on or studied very much. And we've considered the two shorter letters of 2nd and 3rd John in previous weeks, and this week we want to take up Paul's little letter to Philemon, which is found on page one, 1000 in your Pew Bible. So if you'll turn to the little letter to Philemon, it's right before the book of Hebrews. Now, in the next three weeks, we'll make our way through this little letter, so I'm not intending to preach the whole thing tonight. In fact, I'm going to confine our attention to just the first seven verses of this little letter. But before we read the letter in its entirety, maybe just a little background on this would be a little helpful. Um, Paul is writing to a man, probably an older man, named Philemon, who was probably converted under Paul's ministry. And what has happened is there's been a, a serious rift in a relationship that Philemon has had namely with a slave by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus has run away. Um, some later commentaries believe it's actually not. He didn't run away. He was actually seeking out Paul to resolve a disagreement between um, himself and Philemon. But whether or not that's the case, we can't know for sure. But the majority opinion on the issue is that Onesimus has been a runaway. He was a runaway slave in the house of Philemon. And what happened is that Onesimus was converted under Paul's ministry, and Paul is sending him back to Philemon. Now, evidently, before he left Philemon, the assumption is he he did something that seriously wronged him, perhaps stole money or something. And Paul is writing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus to try to get them reconciled with each other. The central theme of the letter is this forgiveness and reconciliation that is to, to happen between Christians. So let, with that in mind, um, there's three main characters, Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. And in the first seven verses, Paul is talking, about, talking directly to Philemon. And then in verse 8, Paul begins to talk about Onesimus. And then in the last part of the letter, beginning with verse 17, Paul begins addressing Philemon and Onesimus' relationship and, and asking Philemon to forgive him. So let's, with that in mind, let's read the entire letter. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will." For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, tonight we want to consider the first seven verses in this letter under the theme, Preparing for Forgiveness. Preparing for Forgiveness. Because in these opening verses, Paul prepares Philemon for his appeal that he's going to make in the beginning of verse 8, which is to receive Onesimus back. And he prepares him by reminding him of, First, the content of the gospel in verses 1 to 3. Second, the effect of the gospel in verses 4 and 5. And third, the claim of the gospel in verses 6 and 7. So the main point of tonight's sermon is this, that in order to forgive someone, in order to forgive someone, we must understand what the gospel is, what effect it has had on our lives, and what it is what claims it makes upon our behavior toward others. So let me say that one more time because this is a big idea tonight, okay? In order to forgive someone, we must, we must, if we're going to biblically forgive each other, we must understand what the gospel is, what effect it's had in our lives already, and what claim it makes upon us for our behavior in the future toward others. So those are my three points. The content of the gospel, what it is, the effect of the gospel, what it's done, and the, the claim of the gospel, what it requires us to do now. Okay, so first of all, the content of the gospel, and that's in verses 1 through 3. Now, Paul begins by reminding Philemon of what the gospel is at its heart, doesn't he? He introduces himself, as is customary in all of his letters, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, so Philemon wasn't just converted under Paul's ministry. He was evidently very useful in ministry with Paul for a time. Because whenever Paul uses that designation fellow worker, he's usually not just talking about regular Christians that were converted under his ministry. He's talking about people who worked alongside him in gospel labor. And he writes to Aphia our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, in the church in your house. Many people think this is Philemon's family. It's his wife and his son. And in Colossians chapter 4, which is kind of a parallel with Philemon, Archippus is talked about as being very useful to Paul as well. So this whole family is a godly family. It's a family that, is, that has history with the Apostle Paul, and that has been very fruitful for the Apostle Paul in terms of his, their co-labor with him. So Philemon is being addressed along with perhaps, we can't know for sure, but perhaps his wife and his son um, and the church that meets in their home which is a very kind of savvy move on Paul's part, isn't it? Cuz he intends this letter not only to be read by Philemon but also by the church. We have responsibilities to each other. It's not just a private matter when Christians are having issues. It's a it's a it's a church concern. That doesn't necessarily mean that every problem between Christians gets broadcast in the church, but it isn't it does affect the entire church. And that's why it's so important that we deal with unforgiveness in our hearts if we have any unforgiveness or bitterness toward each other. But here's the summary of the gospel that Paul gives in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now imagine you're Philemon and you receive this letter. And the first thing that Paul does, as he does is customary in all of his letters, is remind his readers of the content of the gospel, which is grace from the Father... Peace from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the summary of the gospel is that here we have grace and peace. By grace we have been treated by God the Father far better than we ever deserved, as we sang tonight. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that is greater than all of our sin. And the grace that we have received, the, gra- the grace that God has treated us with, the kindness that we've received from God is unbelievable. We have peace with God where we were once at war with God because of our sin. God's justice demands that our sin be punished. Nevertheless, Christ takes our sin upon himself and dies in our place suffering the wrath of God for our sins. And we are, have peace with God, as Romans five one says, we have, we've, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we enter into the sphere of grace, which is all around us, God continually treating us kinder and kinder and kinder than our sins deserve him to treat us. But because Jesus has died for us, we have peace with him through faith, and we are treated by God with unbelievable grace. So he reminds him of the content of the gospel. Now, why does he do this? Why would Paul spend time at the beginning of this letter reminding Philemon of the peace we enjoy with God and the grace we have received from him. Why does he do that? Because we've been treated by God far better than we deserve. And how can we who have been treated by God with such kindness withhold from others the very forgiveness that we ourselves have received? He's kind of pushing that in Philemon's face right at the very beginning, reminding him of the grace that he's received from God and the peace that he enjoys with God So are you going to be not at peace with others? Are you not going to treat others with the same grace that God has extended to you? Isn't this similar to the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18? Remember that about the two debtors? The one debtor who was forgiven this 10-talent debt and this other debtor who was not forgiven this large debt or was forgiven this large debt and would not forgive his own servant this small debt in comparison to the large debt that he had been forgiven? That's exactly what Paul is doing. I don't have time to turn there, but if you want to read that story for yourself, you can find it in Matthew 18. But anyway, Philemon is being reminded of God's kindness to him. And you understand now how the gospel, understanding the content of the gospel, is foundational to being able to forgive someone else. Why? Why? Why is the gospel foundational to our forgiveness of others? Because scripture assumes that if we have truly experienced God's forgiveness in the gospel, we will be radically forgiving toward others. That's the assumption of Scripture. That's the assumption of Jesus. By contrast, if we are unforgiving, if we are resentful or bitter toward other people, it is a sure sign that we are not living out of the deep freedom and joy of the gospel. You meet a bitter person, you meet a resentful person, that is a person who is not experiencing the gospel. If they're a Christian, that's their root issue. That's the the fruit is the bitterness and resentment in their life. The root is a failure to appropriate the gospel in their own lives and understand how great of a sinner they really are. Here's a helpful quote from the Gospel-Centered Life, which is a curriculum we've been uh, using very very fruitfully, I think, in our high school Sunday school class, and I'll just read from one of the articles that we read together a couple weeks ago so the high schoolers will think, hey, we read that. When we say, I just can't forgive that person for what he did to me, when we say things like that, we are essentially saying, that person's sin is greater than mine. Our awareness of our sin is very small, while our awareness of another's sin is very big. Our underlying feeling is that we deserve to be forgiven, but the person who offended us does not. Their offense against me is greater than my offense against God. But when we embrace a gospel perspective on our own sin, we recognize the sin debt God has forgiven on our behalf is greater than any sin that has been committed against us. Forgiveness is costly. It means canceling the debt, when we feel like we have every right to demand payment. It means absorbing the pain, hurt, shame, and grief of someone else's sin against us. It means taking the initiative and longing for repentance and restoration. But this is exactly how God has acted toward us in Jesus Christ. He canceled the debt that he had every right to demand payment for. He canceled that debt. He absorbed the pain, hurt, shame, and grief himself. He took the initiative in longing for repentance and restoration. And through the gospel, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the exact same thing toward other people. So that's why understanding the gospel is foundational to being able to forgive anybody from your heart. So that's the content of the gospel. Number two, point number two. Um, The effect of the gospel, the effect of the gospel, verses 4 and 5. Notice what Paul says to Philemon here. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. Now, do do you think Paul prayed for a lot of people? I mean, I just, I'm always, always, always rebuked when I read the example of the Apostle Paul here and how he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. He is a man who values prayer, who understands the role of prayer in his own life and ministry, and continually he is thankful to God for the people that he has a privilege of knowing. And here's why he's so thankful to God. Verse 5, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Toward all the saints. Philemon's life has been obviously transformed by the gospel, hasn't it? It has become it's a faith life. It's a life that has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, an eye toward Jesus Christ and everything, and it has a it's a life that has great love for other people, especially believers. The love that he has for all the saints. Our lives are forever changed when we embrace the gospel and Philemon's life was transformed and Paul reminds him of how the gospel has transformed him in verses 4 and 5. So how has the gospel transformed Philemon? It's produced faith in him. It has moved him to be a faith to have a faithful life, a life full of faith in Jesus and a life of love toward the saints. That's the faith working itself out through love to the people of God. And for what does he thank God? He doesn't thank God for all of Philemon's love for him. you know it's easy in some sense easy to do that. I'm so thankful that person for how they care for me, and we should be thankful for that. we should care for each other. But Paul's heart is so large that he gets encouragement from when he sees Christians loving other people and giving themselves to them, and he never he doesn't think, "Huh, why don't they give that to me? I'm sitting here in jail. I'd like a visit now and then. You know? And he is getting visits. And he is receiving love. But he can write and say, listen, I, when I think about you, Philemon, when I think about your wife, when I think about your son, when I think about the church that meets in your house, I just erupt in thanks to God because of your love for those people that that, it, that you're obviously laying your life down for and caring for. And it thrills my heart. And notice that This is not inconsistent with humility. He is pointing this out to Philemon. He is telling Philemon what he is thankful for about God, God's work in Philemon's life, and drawing Philemon's attention to that work. Do you think that's pride? Does it make you uncomfortable when people point out what God is doing in your life? what they discern as God's doing in your life, does that make you uncomfortable? Brothers and sisters, I hope it doesn't because I want our church to be dominated by that. I want our church to be absolutely dominated by that. Yes, I want us to be free from pride, but this will not cultivate pride. This will cultivate humility. No one has taught me more about the importance of this practice in pastoral ministry besides the Apostle Paul than C.J. Mahaney. Let me read you his words. Most people are, he calls this identifying evidences of grace. And that's what Paul is doing in Philemon's life. He is identifying evidences of God's work in Philemon for Philemon's encouragement. Because he wants Philemon to recognize that God is at work in his life, that God, I mean, he's a, Philemon's a leader. He probably never gets encouragement. Leaders rarely get encouragement. I'm not saying that because I don't feel encouraged, I do. (laughs) But leaders rarely get that encouragement. And Philemon, Paul has a wonderful example of what a senior Christian is to be, investing in the next generation, pouring his life into Philemon. He encourages him with specific evidences of what God is doing in his life. And here's what CJ says. He says, most people are more aware of the absence of God than the presence of God. Most people are more aware of the presence of sin than evidences of grace. I mean, no one has to go around and remind you that you're sinful, do you? Do they? I mean, you know that. That's a daily reality experienced all the time. What is not as experienced is where God is at work. And here's where C.J. gets insightful. What a privilege and joy it is to turn another person's attention to ways in which God is at work, because so often people are unaware of God's work. And much of God's work in our lives is quiet. It's not spectacular. It's rarely obvious to the individual, and normally it's incremental and takes place over a long period of time. So informed, continuing, CJ says, so informed by Paul's leadership, I want to interact with everybody by identifying an evidence of grace, because if they are a Christian, I know God is at work in their lives. What a joy it is to discern where and how God is at work, draw people's attention to it, and celebrate God's grace in their lives, to God's glory. The fact that we get to do this, CJ says, how cool is this? How cool that we get to do this for each other. That to God's glory, we get to point out what God is doing in each other's lives and celebrate that as an act of worship. When we don't do that, we're not bringing worship to God. We're obscuring worship. We're obscuring possibilities for worship. Because at that moment, we get to identify that evidence, draw that person's attention to it, and celebrate not their goodness, but God's grace together. Isn't God good? He's working in you. And that that encourages each other, and it, it blesses the Lord. Going on, CJ says, I also know that this is critical preparation for any correction that genuinely needs to take place in their lives. Because identifying God's work in their lives gives them faith for the correction they might be in need of. And they can consider that correction without collapsing under that correction, being unaware that God is at work in their life. Paul knows that. CJ knows that. Because he's getting ready to bring a word of correction to Philemon or ask of him something that's going to demand a response. And so Paul is a good, godly leader, is kind of front-loading encouragement plenty of encouragement. In conclusion, C.J. writes this. See, Paul's correction of people is effective because he has faith for them. When we correct people, they can tell whether we have affection for them and faith for them. I would encourage all of us to restrain ourselves from correcting someone until we have developed to some degree affection for them and faith for them. Don't correct anybody that you don't have affection for and faith for, faith for change. So CJ concludes by saying, how do I identify evidences of grace? And he gives us what he calls a starter's kit, so I'll just share that with you. I recommend a starter's kit for recognizing evidences of grace. It's a starter's kit, but you will never outgrow or exhaust it. Just take two categories, the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Familiarize yourself with how the Holy Spirit gifts people, And familiarize yourself with the work of the Holy Spirit evidently in a person's life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And then he says this, work from these two categories and lists. Study those lists in the Bible. Look up from studying those lists and behold the Christians around you. You will see God at work everywhere you look. God is working. God is very busy. God, give us the eyes to see how you are at work so we can identify that, draw people's attention to it, celebrate it, and assign all glory to you for that work. One of the great benefits of the church is as we come together, we can help perceive how God is at work in each other's lives. A church that is dwelling richly on the content of the gospel and pointing out to each other the ways that same gospel is bearing fruit in their lives will create an incredible climate of forgiveness in that church. We will be a more forgiving people as we are more encouraged by God and more encouraging to each other. It will be easy to forgive each other, easy to forgive each other if that climate is the climate of Heritage Baptist Church. And I want you to know I want that climate to be the climate of this church. I want me, our pastors, and you all, to see it as one of your Christian responsibilities to encourage other believers by identifying where you discern God is at work in their lives. And as we see right here, that will be an application of biblical principle. That will be an application of what Paul is doing for Philemon right here. And oh, we will be a happy church. Oh, we will be a thankful church. Oh, we will be a humble church, and oh, we will be a forgiving church, and that's what I want. So talking about forgiveness, you know, talking about we need to forgive and we need to bear with each other and we need to exercise patience with one another, all that is not going to bear any fruit unless we are a gospel people that is identifying gospel evidence in each other's life. It just won't get very far. So let's be encouraging to each other. Let's identify those evidences of grace. You know the only thing that's going to keep you back from that? Pride in your life. That is the only thing that will keep you back. That's the only thing that keeps me back from doing it is pride, self-righteousness. And I cover it up and say, well, I want to serve their humility. (laughs) And it's actually serving my pride. It's not serving their humility at all. If I shared it, it would serve their humility. So let's share those things. Let's get, oh that, oh, that our care groups would be marked by this kind of stuff, that you would come knowing that you're going to get encouraged and that you're going to be encouraging. Oh, that that would be the climate. That, wouldn't you look forward to that? People tonight are going to help me identify where God is at work in my life. I don't see it from day to day. They see me. They know me. They've heard my prayer requests. They've prayed for me. They observe me on a, on a weekly basis. They see my status updates on Facebook. They hear my telephone calls. They interact with me. And all it is is saying, sister, brother, I want to share something with you that has been encouraging to me about you that God is, I think, doing in your life. I see this fruit of God's spirit in your life. And that's all Paul is doing here. He sees this fruit in Philemon's life. And he draws Philemon's attention to it and celebrates it to God. I thank my God always. He invites Philemon into his prayers and tells Philemon the things for which he is thankful to God. Do we ever do that for each other? Do we do that for each other? Do we say, I want to tell you what I thank God for about you this week? I want to tell you what I thank God for you about this week. I thank God that you responded so humbly to that nursery call. I thank God for that. You were eager, ready, willing. I thought you were going to be resistant, and you cheerfully. That is an evidence of God's grace in your life. Thank you. Praise God for that, that he is creating in you a servant heart. Be encouraged. One example, I thank God that in the midst of this difficult circumstance, I don't see complaint on your face. I don't see, I don't hear you voicing complaint. I'm sure there's been struggle, but you seem like you're pursuing your joy in the Lord. Praise God for that. CJ tells a great story about this. He's the, no one can emulate his example. <laughs> no one. Uh, he, he talks about how he trains his son and helps his son do this. Uh, but um, he said he was standing in a worship service one time and uh, he uh. He turned to his son, Chad, who was like 12 at the time, and he says, Chad, I want you to look at something. You see that woman over there, that woman right there? Her name's Alice. You see her with her hands lifted in the air? Do you see that? She is. Did you know she is dying of cancer? Do you see her hands lifted up as she's singing, blessed be the name of the Lord? Chad, let's go encourage her after this service. Let's go over to her and say, I see. Alice, I want you to be encouraged. I see your palms lifted up. God is at work in your life. You're dying of cancer. There's the, the fields have no fruit. You see no future, and nevertheless, your soul is waiting for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. Praise God for what he's doing in your life. you think Alice was like, I don't want to do that. That's pride. No, she'd be so encouraged by that. And that's the kind of stuff that I want to characterize our assembly, that when we meet together, that becomes just the norm. It's not something special. It's just regular. And it just becomes part of the life of our church. And if and if if we will do that, we will we will be a forgiving people, a patient people with each other. And that's what I'm praying that we will become. So let's labor to that end. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Good. Okay, um last point, the claim of the gospel, verses 6 and 7. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So after reminding Philemon of what the gospel is and what effect it has had in his life, Paul now moves on to call Philemon to respond to the present claims of the gospel in his life. The gospel is not only affects change in us, but also governs how we are to respond in all the various issues of life. Notice, Paul reminds Philemon to continue in faith and love. Now, he's already pointed out that he's thankful for Philemon's faith and love, right? And now he calls upon him in 6 and 7 to continue in faith and love. Verse 6, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is, that is in us for the sake of Christ. Faith and love are present in Philemon's life. Additional, additional exercise of faith and love are still required. Additionally, the love that Philemon has for Christians must be re-exercised continually. The faith that such love requires must be continually reapplied. Philemon has already come to understand every good thing, and he has refreshed the hearts of God's people out of his deep love. Now Paul asks Philemon to reveal the depths of his love and fellowship with Paul by refreshing his heart with a favor. Now in verse 6, Paul addresses Philemon's faith, and this is a very disputed text. Have you ever, have you ever been, can you remember those times where you have believed a certain passage was teaching certain, something else and then you found out all along it wasn't teaching that? I can remember certain moments in my life, like Revelation 3.20, the invitation text. You know, for the longest time I preached that and it's of course applied that way and rightfully so. But then you then one day you're like it dawns on you through someone preaching or tells you, Hey, do you know that's about Christians already? I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> I never thought about that. Well, Philippians or one six was one of those verses for me. I always thought it was about evangelism. Can you see how it might you might think that? I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is for our sake that is that is ours in Christ. And I can remember in campus outreach being charged up, you know, it's like share your faith. It'll bring you to a greater knowledge of what you have in Christ. It's going to thrill you. And I'm thinking, Yeah, that's great. I want that. And of course that's a biblical truth. That as we share our faith, we become more, The God works the gospel deeper in our own lives as well. You're not the only one benefiting from sharing the gospel, or they aren't the only one benefiting from sharing the gospel. You are as well, but that's not the point of this text. So I'm sorry if I knocked your foundation out tonight. I crushed your favorite verse. Oh, no. He's ruining my verse. I'm not trying to do that. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Here's how Douglas Moo uh, describes the essence of this text, and I agree with his interpretation. Here's what what he says. He says, this is a paraphrase okay, of what what Paul is calling Philemon to do in this verse. Philemon, I am praying that the mutual participation – that arises from your faith in Christ that we share and that you share with other Christians might become effective in leading you to understand and put into practice all the good that God wills for us and that is found in our community and do all this for the sake of Christ. In other words, Paul is calling Philemon to exercise his faith in Christ and the gospel and live out the implication of the gospel of his faith which in this case is to forgive just as he's been forgiven. That's the point. He's calling him to live out the implications of his faith, to continue to live out the implication of his faith, to allow this mutual participation that arises from faith to become effective and to work its way into, the, into his life and behavior in this sense. It's basically saying, I want you to behave like a Christian right now in this situation, is is kind of the, the essence of what he's saying. And that will yield a greater understanding of what you have and a fuller understanding of all the good that God has in mind for us. So what's the application from this third point about the claim of the gospel and gov- the gospel governing our behavior? It's this. We don't get to respond the way we want to people. We don't get, brothers and sisters, we don't get to respond the way we want when we are wronged. We don't get that. That's not in the Bill of Rights of Christianity. We have to submit those feelings, submit those wrongs against us to the Lord and live according to his word and govern our behavior and our response by how he calls us to respond. The claim of the gospel on us is to respond the way most consistent with the gospel, not how we feel in that moment. So when we are wronged, we need to stop and think, how does the gospel call me to respond in this situation? What is the response that will glorify God? What is the response that is most consistent with the way God has treated me? That's the question to ask. And you ask this question. What will be the response that will most magnify God and most increase my joy? Because that's what Paul's telling Philemon to do. He says, as you exercise your faith in this way, as you reach out to Onesimus, forgive him for his sin, you will have a fuller understanding of the gospel for yourself and all the good that God has in mind for you. Notice what God does here, right? He tethers our joy to our obedience. He says that if you want to experience more of God, more of his joy, more of his goodwill for you, then you have to respond this way. And haven't we experienced that? Haven't we experienced that? When we have governed our lives by how the gospel calls us to respond, not how we want to respond. We look back on those situations and we think, God was so good. That was so precious. The way that, yes, God's will is good and perfect and pleasing. Yes, it is. But we don't experience that until we walk through the difficult circumstance, through the forgiveness, through the awkwardness of Onesimus walking back. It's got to be awkward. So while we cannot always affect reconciliation, this is my conclusion, which is conditional upon repentance. We can't always affect the reconciliation that we desire with others. We are called by God to offer forgiveness by opening the door wide for such reconciliation to take place. And this will only happen as we are dwelling on the gospel, as we are discerning the present effects of the gospel in our own lives and as we are both in our own souls and pointing that out to each other and as we are renouncing our rights and submitting our lives to the claims that the gospel would make on our behavior. So our heart's desire is not simply to forgive the offense but rather to see the other person reconciled to God and to us. We want to see sin's power over this person destroyed. We cannot make this happen, and we pray for it and long for it and welcome it. And the deeper the wound is, the more challenging that is. You know that. The deeper the wound, the more challenging this is, which is why we need to remember the gospel, which is why we need to bathe in the gospel, because our forgiveness of others is intended to mirror the forgiveness God has given us. Our forgiveness of others is meant to mirror the forgiveness that God has given us. Is yours? Let's pray. Father, we end tonight um, thanking you for the goodness of the gospel, for the grace and the peace that we have with you, the grace we continually receive from you and the peace that passes all understanding, um, that is rooted in the objective peace that we enjoy because of Jesus and his work on the cross for us, we pray that that gospel would so work deeply in our souls. Lord, we feel like so often that um, it's like the Coke machine, that we put the money in and we hit the button and the Coke doesn't drop. It just doesn 't fall so we start to shake the machine in hopes that it'll drop that's that's our lives we just we we put the gospel in Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and read it in our in books and in the Bible and yet all the while it just doesn't drop the way it should in our lives and so we pray that you will by your grace just smack the side of that machine until it drops We pray that you will keep rooting the gospel deeply in our souls in our hearts and forming the image of Christ deep in our lives so that we will be not only a gospel-saturated people that are under the gospel continually, but that, that gospel that is so saturating us all the time would work itself deeply into the pores of our soul and, and work, it, work its way out in the sweat of faith and love and forgiveness. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.